After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. In a career spanning three decades, comedy writer and performer Julian Dutton has become a permanent fixture on both radio and television. The co-creator of Matt Lux's Pompadour, Julian assisted in the rediscovery of physical comedy since the popularity of Rowan Atkinson's Mr. Bean. Beyond slapstick, Julian has contributed to Alistair McGowan's big impression, which he saw successfully transition from Radio 4 to BBC One. I caught up with the writer and comedian ahead of his one-man show at the Museum of Comedy to talk about heroes, live performance and his hopes for the future. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Julian Dutton. Um, let's go back to the beginning. After university, mm-hmm. you began work as an actor, touring with mm-hmm. your own theatre company and writing and performing in your own play, The Candidate, mm-hmm. at the New End Theatre, Hampstead. Mm-hmm. As a writer and performer, to what extent is this the only way to maintain your ownership over the work you create? Well, that's an interesting question, because many writers, when they start out, they, um, they think they're very wary of giving their stuff away because... They think, oh, there's this, so so and so is going to steal it or whatever. But um, I've never been that paranoid, and I was assure writers that uh, you've got to have confidence that the people you're working with are, are not going to steal it. But I think, but I think, um, yes, writing my own stuff has always been a good, uh, a good way of uh, you know getting yourself in things, really, um, which is uh, the, I think the point of your question. Yes, I, I do believe many performers, actors or comedians, uh, well, more so comedians, because many write their own material anyway, but, but uh, performers, yes, as a way to get a foothold on the ladder, you know, of, of one's career. It's quite tricky to start out um, because nobody knows who you are. So, yes, I started writing my own stuff, and that's how the writing began, really, and it kind of took over in a sense that script writing became kind of 80% of my work and performing uh, 20%. But I always, ma- I always made sure I was in the things I wrote, you know, radio and TV. I always wrote myself apart. So, um, so when I sort of stopped being a kind of an actor as such, in inverted commas, um, on the, the stage, I began writing radio comedy around sort of 89, 90. And I really, one of my burning ambitions was to get my own radio series. So I started writing for uh, shows like Weekending and the News Headlines. Radio 2 and Radio 4, and that's, uh, that's a really good way in for somebody uh, starting script writing. Okay. Um, by the early 1990s, you had decided mm-hmm. that the comedy route was the direction that you wanted to take your career, and like so many of your contemporaries like Richard Herring, Stuart Lee, Harry Hill, and Armando Iannucci, you secured a spot on the BBC Radio 4's Weekending. <laughs> I've leapt ahead of you, haven't I? <laughs> this is like this, the, the mastermind sketch, the, the two yeah, Ronnies, yeah. Where, where I answer the, every question with the previous one. Um, Sorry. Okay. Uh, why do you think this show became so pivotal, pivotal mm. Sorry, in bringing new comedy talent through? Well, it was the big showcase for comedy writing um, 
on a sort of broadcast uh, level. Uh, weekending and the news hunt. The weekending was the more the sort of uh, private eye um, and uh, of of Radio Four. You know, slightly satirical, nudge nudge, wink wink. And and the news headlines was more brash and brazen, and uh, as you'd expect, because Roy Hudd was starring in it, uh, more musical and a sort of nod back to the. Um, so the kind of brash, breezy variety kind of show, which was great. And sort of sort of round the horn, but topical. And so they were two completely different styles of show, which was great to work on because you had to switch your style when you sat down to write some material. Um, they were definitely two different styles. And yes, radio was a great way in, and still is, I believe, uh, to start a comedy script writing career. Um, and there was a special scheme. I, I, I really don't know if it's still going, but uh, there's a sort of contract that said that it was called the Peter Titheridge Award. <laughs> Sounds quite grand. I think Peter Titheridge was the producer of, uh, I'm sorry, I'll read that again, uh, that uh, great radio comedy sketch show with Tim Brooke Taylor and John Cleese. And I, and they, I think they named the um, contract after him. And uh, I, I was awarded it along with uh, Richard Herring and Stuart Lee. And what that was was it was a kind of a stipend, which you got you got paid a certain amount every month, and you were on a kind of retainer, really, which was great. And so you got to work on all sorts of shows, from uh, panel shows to, to sitcoms to you know pilots, and so everybody was getting their own pilots going. And it was a great time, really, for writing. I you know I, I look back on it fondly. There were some great people there, as you say, Herring and Lee and Peter Bainham, who I worked with, who went on to a great uh, screenwriting career, and. Um, as you say, I'm under a new Chris Morris was wandering around the corridor at that time, uh, uh, rehearsing. I remember hearing him rehearse uh, on the hour, actually, you know, shouting from the, <laughs> from Armando's office. So yeah, that's uh, basic. Basically, radio com, BBC Radio Light Entertainment was my kind of university. Everybody looks back on their kind of formative um, time. Uh, kind of a crucible of their lives, and many people. For many people, it's the university. University, but for me, it was definitely a radio light entertainment. Uh, next question already has a name that you've mentioned. Uh, <laughs> so, then you teamed up with the legendary Roy Hudd and June Whitfield for Radio 2's The News Hotline. That's right. Yes. What yes. were these two comedy legends able to teach you about making people laugh? Oh gosh. Well, Roy Hudd, I remember, was a perfect audience. I mean, sometimes you go down to the Paris studio where it was recorded and um, watch a read-through and rehearsal and stuff. And in the green room, Roy was absolutely one of the most generous performers I've worked with. He would laugh uproariously at all your material. Now, I don't know whether that was genuine. Uh, he genuinely... I, I, I do actually think he genuinely find, found everything funny. Um, but he was so kind because uh, I do remember him introducing the show to the audience in the Paris studio. And he would specifically name writers. He would say, oh, oh, we've got a great sketch uh, uh, written by so-and-so. And uh, one day down at the Paris studio, um, he said, oh, we've got some lovely sketches written by the wonderful writer called Julian Dutton, ladies and gentlemen. Julian Dutton, I think he's in the audience. Give, give him a hand. It's a terrible impression, sorry, but I'm, I'm trying to do Roy Hudd. I'm doing Roy Hudd, as Roy Brighton, uh, Rob Brighton would say. Um, so that was really, uh, I was really chuffed at uh, that. So... Yes, as I said, it's a, it was a different style of show to weekending, but I enjoyed working on both, really. It was uh, great fun. I mean, there was, no, there was no satire in uh, the Hudlines. Of course, the difference was the Hudlines was an audience show, which I think lent it greater value in terms of teaching writers because, of course, you have to get the laugh. So it, it taught you how to structure 
a, a scene to get the laugh at the end of the scene. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. yeah. yeah big fan of Roy Hudd. Yes, but I mean, Weekend, of course, was not an audience, so yeah. you kind of had to, you, you could get away yeah. with this as a sketch not getting huge laughs. But. Interestingly, some mm. of your early television work came in sketches alongside another comedy powerhouse, the great Peter Cook. How was it oh, working yes. opposite such a satirical icon? Wow, that was amazing, that was, yes. Um, well, Harry Thompson was a BBC comedy producer for both radio and TV. Um, people remember him producing the 11 o'clock show, and he discovered um, Sasha Baron Cohen. He produced Harry Enfield and Chums, which I believe was Harry Enfield's first well, one of his first TV series. I know he'd done spots on Saturday Night Live now. Um, yeah, so Harry Thompson was producing this show called The Bore of the Year Awards. I think it was 92 or 93, I can't remember. And uh, it was a private eye-inspired spoof award show, really. You know, with awards like... Uh, <laughs> it was really glamorously done. The production was brilliant. The set looked exactly like, you know, a hotel in Park Lane or whatever. It was all done in the BBC studios. Um... And it was a send-up of award shows. There were things like, you know, the most boring interviewer of the year awards, uh, the most, uh, yes, yeah, so, you know, the most, uh, the, the most devious politician of the year award, and things like that. And then, you know, Ken Livingston turned up and was given an award. It was all, um, it was all in good uh, spirit. But I did a sketch, a couple of sketches with Peter Cook, which was amazing. I mean, when I turned up, Harry basically phoned me up and said, "Do you want to be in this spoof award show?" And I. I thought, I said, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, he's a Griffiths Jones and Peter Cook's going to be in it, Rory Bremner. So I turned up and I, I didn't really, I didn't know I was going to be performing with Peter Cook. And he was absolutely charming, wonderful. He, I think I'm right in saying it was one of his last TV things, actually. Uh, but he was very generous. I mean, here is a man who sort of defined modern comedy. And he was sort of, you know, embracing me and saying, oh, that was, oh, that was lovely, Julian. Yes, yes, sure. I think we should, let's go again. I mean, if you stand over here, you know, I mean, if you stand here, then I can reach you and I push you. Because he was, he played Robert Maxwell and I was his um, assistant sailor, sort of uh, captain of the ship. I don't know if any listeners remember, but Robert Maxwell, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't laugh, uh, jumped off a ship um, and I played his, uh, his, <laughs> I played, <laughs> so Peter, Peter Cook was playing Robert Maxwell. I don't know if I actually remember it, but Robert Maxwell basically filched all his pension fund. Anyway, that's what the sketch was about. And Peter, and Peter Cook uh, said, I'm, I, I must make the ultimate sacrifice. And uh, I said, no, don't do it, sir. Please don't do it. And he pushed me off the, uh, the end of the side of the ship. Um, which that bit, it's, it sounds a bit naff now, but it was, it was a funny sketch. I mean, uh, Peter Cook wrote it, actually, so it had to be funny. Um... And he was lovely to work with. It was amazing. I had a day's film, uh, half a day's filming with him, and uh, he was absolutely wonderful. Clive Anderson, oh. yeah, yes. He did a great chat show. Peter Cook? Yeah. Oh, yes, that was one of the funniest shows I think I've ever seen. It's, it's where he played four different characters. Yes, the pop uh, star. He played, um, I think it was Colonel Streep Griebling or somebody similar. And um, he was an old colonel, that's right, and Clive Anderson was interviewing him. And I remember some lovely stuff in that where uh, 
Peter Cook says, well, yes, yes, unfortunately, the, the village where I'm on the parish council, you know, we're, unfortunately, we've, um, I tried to get execution passed as a sentence for uh, misdemeanors in the village, <laughs> but sadly, the rest of the council were against it. I think something like that, yeah. And, um, he played a pop producer, I think, didn't he? And, um, he said, yeah, you know, in the, in the, you know we're, you know, we're going to get every, all the band together. You know, I think uh, yeah, we got a sort of reunion gig planned for 2020. And of course, it was 30 years ahead. But yes, that was a great show, great show. He was, oh, he was a genius. And I think, as I say, sadly, he died shortly after I performed with him. Um, that's not to say uh, I jinxed him at all. Or, although I did perform with, uh, I did make a commercial with um, Frankie Howard. And that, uh, he sadly died about three weeks later. Sorry, I'm, I'm, this conversation is turning very dark, but um, please, another question. Lift, lift, lift the yeah. whole conversation. Let's uh, turn from the morbid uh, tone that we said. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, okay, so the next one is, working with Alistair McGowan on Radio 4 during the 90s, how difficult is it to nail the character merely by using your voice? Well, uh, that's an interesting question, really. I think uh, performing with radio... Yes, Alistair was a genius. I, I, I sort of met him. Um, I met him on the circuit when I was doing stand-up first, actually. I started doing an impressionist act. And, of course, Alistair had already carved out a great niche as an impressionist on the stand-up circuit. So I used to go to gigs and watch him and, um, occasion and he'd give me some tips and advice and everything. And that's how we sort of became friends and then we did a few radio shows together I think he did a few weekendings I did a few weekendings and then I pitched a radio show for him um, well it was a team show but he was the sort of star of it called The Harpoon which was um, a spoof old um, boys magazine type show which was uh, sending up it was a bit like ripping yarns although I you know, ripping yards didn't even sort of occur to us at the time, uh, but it was it was more of a uh, sketch show, but uh, set in the 1930s, basically. <laughs> 1930s sketch show, um, and we did tons of different voices on that. The ch different, the, well, the challenge, of course, on radio is to um, just transform you. But I think, as I say, the pictures are better on radio. So yes, you transform your voice, and I think it, you do get input from the listener's imagination. Um, so we, you know, as with radio, you can do anything. You can have sketches set on the moon in a rocket or yeah, yeah Antarctica. Be wherever, be <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, we did sketches uh, set on the uh, set in the Atlantic, you know, the Atlantic Ocean. I, I remember one sketch in the Harpoon. Leonardo did called uh, "Across the Atlantic Alone," and there was a report from a solo crossing of the Atlantic. But then halfway through the sketch, the, sa the sailor realizes that um, the reporter's on the, on the boat with him. So he says, hang on a second, wait a second, this is, uh, well, uh, you're with me. I mean, it isn't solo, is it? I never thought of that. So, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, it was great fun to do that. <laughs> and then we, trans well, then we uh, sort of co-created the big impression, but I'm probably leaping ahead again for your question. I created, yeah, co-created the big impression with him uh, for BBC One, which is a, a uh, yes, yes, well, I, sh I shall leave you to it. Fire away, fire away. Uh, so, yeah, in 1999, you witnessed the successful transition of Alistair McGowan's big impression from Radio 4 to primetime BBC One. How significant was this in the reuniting impressionism with live entertainment? 
That's a very good point, actually. It's a, I mean, the, <laughs> very good point. Uh, it's like it's a lecture. No, very good question. Because, yes, I, I think I, I just better correct you. It, it didn't actually start on radio, although Alistair and I had done loads of radio shows together. Um, the, the big impression, or Alistair McGowan's big impression as it began, was a new show for TV. Um, people look back on uh, the big impression and they see it's quite a mainstream show. Um, not really satirical like Dead Ringers, it was more fun. And it went out on BBC One, Dead Ringers was BBC, BBC Two. But it's easy to forget that there hadn't been an impression show on, on TV since Mike Yarwood's which I think ended in the late 70s. So there was a period of about sort of almost 20 years between um, the BBC having an impression show on TV and and the big impression. It's quite extraordinary. I have no idea why that happened, but impressionism just fell off the radar and they just stopped making them. I think they looked on impressionists as a bit sort of end of the pier. 70s kind of speciality act, you know, a bit like magicians. But I don't know why, but so we sort of wanted to reinvent the impression show. And although it was Alistair's show, he was very, very generous and he got lots of, not I say lots, about four other <laughs> impressionists on board to sort of help him out in the sketches. And I was very um, proud to be part of a sort of co, co-impressionist on that. Quite a few sketches I did. Sort of, we managed to do all the old people we liked, you know, sort of Jimmy Stewart and um, Dustin Hoffman, and I did a few film stars. And that's where John Lemaitre first started creeping in to the repertoire because we wrote a few sketches. Well, I wrote them actually uh, about uh, Dad's Army. Um, I don't even remember Ian Lavender who played Pike in Dad's Army. He appeared on EastEnders for a while playing a character called Derek, so I thought it'd be fun to write some sketches where he's in the EastEnders, it's set in the, sketches set in the, in the Queen Vic, um, but he, he wants to turn the EastEnders into Dad's army, you know, you know, because he, and that's when I sort of started doing uh, John LeMessurier in uh, Sergeant Wilson in um, The Big Impression, Alistair played Pike, you know, I'd be in the sort of Queen Vic and I'd say, well, I think it all looks rather nice, doesn't it, Frank? It really does, they've done this, uh, they've done out the Queen Vic marvellously, but that's wonderful. Wonderful bunting, you see. It looks absolutely wonderful. It really does. And um, sort of Peggy would be telling me off. Really. So that's how the measure started, really. Well, I was doing it in my uh, stand-up act as well. But um, and so that's yeah. The big impression was a big success. It was great. It ran for, for four or five years, I think. So we're here at the Museum of Comedy, where you're just about to take the, the stage in your new one-man show. Do you think that's wise, sir? Mm. The life and times of John the Measurer. What can we expect? Well, I think you can expect a sort of you know, a bit of light and darkness, really, and you know, a sort of light and shade. I mean, John the Measurer's life, if I may say so, was was quite up and down. You see, I mean, he was very funny on screen. You see, and, and you know, and especially when people people remember sort of me for Dad's Army and everything. But, I don't know. I made about 200 films, you see. So what I do, or what Julian Dutton does in the show... Sorry, I've become him, actually. I'm, he's taking me over. It's basically a tribute to his whole life. I tell him the story of his entire life, um, his reminiscences from the age of rep in the 1930s all the way through to his stardom in the um, late 70s, um, late, well, late, late 60s, that Dad's Army started. And he had an extraordinary life, really. He, um, he was one of those generation of actors who could make a name for himself uh, as a small part actor in films. As I say, he made about 120 to 130 films. Um, and in fact, in the show I do say, you know, 
I made so many, I have to confess, ladies and gentlemen, I made, I mean, I made so many films throughout my career that you know, I can hardly remember the titles of a single one of them, you see. I mean, in fact, the only one I could ever remember is a thing I made called Old Mother Riley Meets the Vampire, <laughs> which is something I made in about 19, 1953, I think. But um, So, yes, he, uh, he made a vast number of films, so I tell the stories of his life in films, his friendships with Terry Thomas, and Peter Sellers, and especially Tony Hancock. Um, He's, his life had a sort of distinct phase, really, a distinct series of phases, rep, films, and then his TV in the 60s. And his friendship with Tony Hancock sort of colours the last third of his life, really. Um, without giving uh, too much away, uh, sadly, his marriage to Hattie Jakes broke down, and then Tony Hancock, his best friend in the 60s, uh, ran off with his, um, with his wife. So uh, it's a bit of an up-and-down show, but I... I I had two choices when making the show. I could have made it a light entertainment, fluffy, fun, showing clips and all jolly. Or I could write, tell his story um, more authentically. And I took the second route because I think it w he wasn't a comedian, really. He wasn't a stand-up. He wouldn't have done those shows like um, uh, an audience with, you know, the ITV show that yeah. Ken Dodd and Kenneth Williams did. He was, Although he was a great storyteller, he wasn't a raconteur like Kenneth Williams or so he wouldn't have done those shows so I've chosen the route of um, depicting his life in, in its light and shade so um, nitty yes gritty. the nitty gritty <laughs> that's a very good phrase yeah. nitty gritty the nitty gritty is here in my life again. okay so um, where do we get to number and just to say I'm touring the whole country still and uh, I, I, I'm sort of coming to the end of this first leg of the tour I've been touring since last November but I am carrying on the show in November, so there's an autumn tour, Whoa. and well, all over the country really, um, and into 2020, and also there's talk of Australia. Wow. That sounds quite ominous. No, there's, I don't know who's talking about it. But there is talk of Australia. Um, yes, because the Australians love old comedy, and there's a British kind of uh, classic comedy. So fingers crossed. Yeah, hopefully that will be lovely. Yes, exactly. It's amazing that over half a century since its first broadcast, there's still a love for the platoon of Warmington on the sea. Why do you think Dad's army is so enduring? Well, that's a very good question. I think the I think it touches a nerve and it appeals to um, something fundamental in the British character, the sort of spirit of pluck in the face of adversity. But there's a key reason which I think it's still a magical series, and it's still repeated on Saturday Night Primetime TV, which is quite extraordinary, really. Um, John LeMessurier was born in 1912, and for his TV comedy shows to still be repeated, uh, and the highest, I believe it's the highest rated audience sitcom on TV at the moment, which is amazing. Alan Corrin wrote a marvellous review of the series in about 1972, the great critic and writer Alan Corrin, and he said that the magic of Dad's Army is that there's a valuable, even they are buffoons. All the characters are buffoons, which is why we love them. We laugh at them. They're, except, interestingly, Sergeant Wilson, he, John Major, he's not actually a buffoon. In a sense, he's the more sensible one, and he represents the audience, really. He sort of looks on now, you know, so I remember, do you think that's wise, sir? I mean, that very catchphrase indicates that he's the guarded one. He's saying, like, hang on a sec. Captain Mannering is the Don Quixote. He wants to up an atom. River patrols. That's it, Wilson. And Alan Corrin said, apart from 
the lovable buffoonery, they would all be willing to die if push came to shove. All the characters would be willing to die if the greater, um, if the greater folly demanded it, he said. And that, I think, sums it up, because we love them because they're, they're not heroic, they're trying to be heroic. At least they're trying to be heroic. So that's my, that's my view of the magic of uh, Dad's Army. Really. Okay. Looking back at your career, what's your proudest of achievement? Gosh, really? Well, I think it's... Uh, <laughs> blimey. Um, I think it's a series of life, it's a series of stages, really. I think you have a series of goals, and you, as you achieve them, you sort of tick them off, and you think you're very proud at the time. I mean, I was very... It's funny, really, but... Um, I was very. Pr- I mean, when, as I say, when I started kind of writing comedy and trying to write comedy, my aim was to get my own TV, uh, get my own radio series. So when I did, um, that's an you know that's an incredible feeling when you get your first and when you get your first sketch on. When I got my first sketch on Weekending, it's it's uh, any writer will tell you it's wow, they're reading my stuff on the radio. So really, it's little things that make you feel. Proud. As your career goes on, I hate. I'd hate it if it happens that you get jaded and sort of... But really, when you've got your sort of 50th sketch on, it's not the same feeling. And so it's, it's, it's the sort of stepping stones, really. Your first radio series, then your first TV series. And I'm very proud of this one-man show, really. I mean, I've toured in stand-up uh, before, uh, doing the circuit and everything. But um, a full-length show is, is, uh, is a challenge. So I'm quite proud of, proud of building this show. And... So yeah, I would say a whole series of things, really. But of course, I should say I'm most proud of my children, really, to be honest. I should have said that first, um, which I have. Of course, they, they, they dwarf any, any career achievement. Okay, and uh, lastly, um, yes. you covered a bit of this momentarily ago, but uh, what's next for Julian Dutton? Good gracious. Well, um, this tour, I've been touring this show for nearly a year now, since last Edinburgh I did the first few previews of it. Um, and, um, I've been focusing on this I mean I have uh, written a couple of sitcom scripts during that time since last August and now which I'm just developing now um, one is in at the BBC but I'm also planning um, th- I mean this show the John Imagery show is going to go on until 2020 I've been quite surprised by its success really because I just didn't know it was going to take off really I just did it thought well, I'd do it do another Edinburgh and see some mates and have some fun. But then um, theatre started booking the show. So I am planning another one-man show, but I haven't picked the person yet. Um, Because I think what's very interesting is not just doing impressions in sketches, but really doing a full-length one-person show, which really gets into their character. Now, whether it's um, somebody like, I don't know, David Niven or um, maybe, you know, Peter Cook or uh, a few people like that. I've got a few people in mind to do, obviously from my repertoire. Um, um, So, yes, that's what's ahead of me, really. A big thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy? Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates of forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.